1: Rock me like a hurricane, higher chatters. How we doing out there? From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and someone certainly seems to have turned reality's weirdness dial up to 11. Power players of the big control pyramid are being weeded out and sacrificed to satisfy the societal call for more red meat. Agenda-driven discourse dominates most of the daily dialogue. The world is burning, the latest pandemic virus seems to have been released, and all of our digital profiles contrived for social control are self-updated daily. The world just seems more archonic every day, and it's getting harder to even tread water in the vast and choppy conspiracy. But fear not, dear people, because today we have the captain of the SS Secret Sun here to set a course for sanity, if such a thing is even possible. His name is Chris Knowles, and this marks his sixth time on the higher side. In the podcasts of Christmas Past, we talked to Chris about everything from Lucifer's technology, the Great Seal of Lyra, and the decoding of NASA rituals, to the Song of the Siren and that strange Cocteau Twins Oracle, Elizabeth Fraser. Today, we are hot on the heels of the release of his debut novel entitled He Will Live Up in the Sky, a seriously awesome sci-fi story like they just don't make anymore, checking nearly every strange box we like around here. Of course, he's also known for titles like Our Gods Wear Spandex and The Secret History of Rock and Roll. I know I'm psyched to get into it, so let's do the damn thing. The fine-toothed comber of pop culture, head detective of Frazier Forensics, and the synchro mystic sage of the Secret Sun blog, Chris, welcome back to THC. Great
0: to be here, Greg. Seriously great to be here.
1: Man, thanks for doing it. It's really refreshing to have you back. I went to look up the date of the last show, and it was December 22nd of 2018. (laughs) And it's hard for me to even believe that we didn't do this at all in 2019. It was a very rocky year, but I guess it went by faster than I thought.
0: Yeah, that was the only good thing about 2019 is that it went by really
1: fast. (laughs) Cheers to that. And let's talk about this new novel a bit, man. He will live up in the sky. I hadn't read fiction in a long time, and I seriously loved it it definitely felt very you from the set and setting to the humor and the many different layers of conspiracy and paranormal goodness going on. Amazon says it's a work of nonfiction fiction that was five years in the making. How else would you describe it for the uninitiated?
0: I wanted to write a book that would sort of encapsulate this weird culture, this nameless, formless culture that we're part of in the way that The Illuminatus trilogy captured the ferment, sort of post-hippie Robert Anton Wilson orbit of the early 70s in the way that Foucault's Pendulum, which was a huge influence on this book, captured the bloodline, holy blood, holy grail. I mean, all that kind of weird royalist, post-Templar occultism that was very popular in Europe at the time of the writing of that book. So I was looking at the culture that we're part of. It has no name, it has no form, it has no leaders. It has a few outlets, some blogs, some podcasts. But, you know, what is it? <laughs> you know, I mean, how do you define it? Yeah. And I wanted to write a book that would kind of take all these themes that we've talked about, you and I have talked about, that I've been writing about, that you've talked about with other guests and put them in a form that would be palatable to people who aren't involved in this culture, palatable to people who just like really entertaining stories. And that to me was the, you know, getting back to Umberto Eco and the Cult's Pendulum. The great thing about that book for me is that at the time I read that book, I had like very little context for what he was writing about as far as the Templars and the Grail and all these kind of things. But he packed so much information into the book that I felt like I was almost like initiated into this world. And that's kind of what I wanted to do with this book. I wanted to sort of take all these themes and initiate readers who aren't necessarily familiar with this worldview into that worldview, and at least sort of give them a sense of, you know, the lay of the land. I mean. What exactly is the thinking? What exactly is the philosophy? But also to write a story that was like really, really fun to read. I wanted to write a page turner. I wanted to write a thrill ride, and that's probably why it took me so long to write because I ended up writing a lot and just deleting a lot. And it's a you know interesting process. The book changed shape so many times, but by the time I was ready to publish it, it really took the form that I was happy with, and a lot of people are responding to it really well. So I'm very, very happy about that.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I would say you hit the target. And I really like the nonfiction fiction fiction description. And of course, I would want to avoid spoilers, but it felt like the story was a template where you could lay out how you see all the layers of military intelligence, as well as the more paranormal aspects of reality. You could kind of Show people how you see these things fitting together without having to peg it to an actual event. It's like that thing where the places and names have been changed to protect the innocent, but this is how the gears of the big machine or even the bigger machine of reality itself actually work if you were wanting to get into it. I think that's a a great approach.
0: Well, thank you. One of the things that I was trying to put across, and again, we won't get into spoilers, but I was trying to get across that I think a lot of the people at the core of these actions, I guess, or, you know, these larger currents at work in the world, I mean, not necessarily the people at the top of the pyramid or the people with their names on the doors and so on and so forth. I mean, but the people who are not necessarily the functionaries, but they're the people who make everything run they make everything work. You know, these are people in a lot of cases that are absolutely unknown to everyone, even people they work for, but so much relies on them. And I was trying to get in like, what would be the psychology of a person who would put themselves into that position? And I think what I really landed on, and I try to put across in the book is that these people have beliefs, you know, they have very powerful beliefs in things, and they spend their whole lives trying to put those beliefs into action and meeting people like russell targ jacques valet ed may who took over for targ with the stanford the sri remote viewing program meeting people like that and sort of getting a sense of their thinking you realize that they are really motivated by convictions and sort of the strong core so taking that and sort of extrapolating to people who use occult means, for lack of a better term, to achieve unwholesome ends, unpalatable ends, what would be their thinking? And that's something that I really wanted to explore. I really wanted to explore why people would be drawn to these things so much so that they would dedicate their lives to them.
1: Yes, I think that comes through. And I was looking at the notes you had given to me and you mentioned John Poindexter's observation that there really aren't a lot of players. What do you mean by that?
0: Poindexter had said this was sometime in the wake of Iran Contra. But when you look at these things, when you look at this netherworld of intelligence, particularly as it applies to things like ufology and the occult, I mean, just look at the Tom DeLong situation. I mean, the people involved. In his program, we've heard their names for years. We might not know them or their works, but we've heard them mentioned. You know, somebody like Grant Cameron has mentioned all these people, you know, Christopher Mellon, Hal Put Off, all these kind of people that work for Tom DeLung. We've heard their names. So they've been in this world for a long time. And what Poindexter was trying to say, I believe he was Bush's or Reagan's national security advisor. And he was trying to say, like, the movers and the shakers. They're really on a lot of them. You know, you have a lot of people who do their jobs and follow orders, but the people who are kind of flitting around in the shadows, really making things happen are a very, very rare breed. They all tend to know each other and they all tend to interact with each other over the course of decades. And I think that's something that I don't know if a lot of people involved in say conspiracy research would, unless they were serious about it, would come to understand that just that we're looking at a very small group of people. And we're looking at a very small group of true believers, really.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. A lot of times these things do seem pretty complex on the surface, and it seems like a giant tangled web, but maybe it isn't quite so complicated, and maybe it is more mappable if you can actually just see into the dark a little bit.
0: Well, like I said, getting back, to just look at To the Stars Academy, Tom Belong. We've discussed that in the past. Yeah. But, you know, Jim Semivan is a name that I've heard for at least 10 years, right? I mean, he's involved in this. Christopher Mellon, part of the Mellon family of Pittsburgh, he's involved in this. Al Putoff, who worked with Russell Targ at SRI, worked on the remote viewing program, he's part of this. And, of course, our friend Peter Lavenda, who's been sort of flitting out of these circles his entire life, hanging out with people like Michael Aquino and Richard Doty out in Las Vegas. So there aren't a lot of these people who not only have the interest, but have the credibility and also have the resume to sort of make these things happen. And that's really what I wanted to convey in this book, because I think it will sort of help people as best as I can in this kind of context to get more of a grip on what this world that we're looking at and trying to understand.
1: Mm -hmm. That's fair. And something I've kind of, paid more attention to in the last year or kind of been worried about is just being very precise with accusations or categorizations. I mean, when you get hit with that scarlet letter of you're one of the bad guys in this whole nexus, I mean, that's hard to rub off. And I do wonder about people like, just to use ones you mentioned, Russell Targ or Peter Lavenda. I've interviewed them both. They were nice to me. Remote viewing seems fairly mundane or innocuous, at least. At least it seems uh, morally neutral, doesn't seem bad. And I think Peter Lavenda is a guy who just kind of wants to get in there and see for himself, which sometimes maybe gets him guilty by association. I don't know. It's very difficult to really maybe separate exactly who is responsible for some of these things and who just wants to know the truth, you know?
0: Well, that's the other thing that I explore in the book. I mean, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on like Peter LaVenda or Russell Targ. I mean, I've met Russell Targ. I've had discussions with him. You know, I have a lot of respect for him. Yeah. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say, you know, this sort of pro-wrestling, rowdy, Roddy Piper kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, heroes and villains world because we're really looking at very great areas and it's kind of like this spectrum of gray tone. And, you know, I would not, I certainly, you know, Russell Targ and people involved with SRI, what I'm trying to say is that I'm not trying to say that they're all like, oh, this evil conspiracy, and they're all in on it. I'm not trying to say that at all. And, you know, if you read the book, you'll see how I spell this out. You know, I'm just trying to say that the people involved in esoteric matters, let's just say, you know, whether for good or bad, it's a generally small group that tends to know each other and tends to work with each other and interacts in these different programs over the decades. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say, oh, you know, this person's some mush ass twirling uh, <laughs> supervillain or something. You know, I'm just trying to say we're looking at a world in which the occult, ufology, the paranormal, psi, all these kind of things have this weird interaction with the military and intelligence agencies and other people in the government and it's a very small pool of people involved in these pursuits
1: mm-hmm. yeah and that does come through in the book you have a lot of characters that are just like real people they're not one-dimensional they say good things and bad things they're just real they're involved in some darkness they see Some things behind the veil that others aren't privy to, and they kind of just, they allude to that, but they keep it to themselves, and people are complex. They can't just be put into one category.
0: Yeah, and and a lot of times people who do really bad things have have really good motivations for doing them. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm -hmm. People turn. People start to see things differently, you know. And this is another thing I want to explore, is how trauma and crisis and all these kind of things change the way people behave, change the way people think, change the way people see the world, you know. And I think a lot of people who end up pursuing these kind of interests very often will have trauma or something they're trying to maybe escape from or trying to solve or trying to cope with and that asking these big questions These big philosophical questions can kind of be a way to cope, I guess.
1: Yes. And there are a lot of uh, odd paranormal things that happen. And I was just curious because I've been reading your blog for so long. How much of this book plays off your own personal life or the weird experiences that you've had?
0: (laughs) I have a, a motto. All fiction is autobiography, right? Yeah. You know, when you're sitting down, staring at a computer screen, and you've got to come up with a story, you know, what are you going to draw on? You know, what's going to have, you know, the most impact to you, the most emotional resonance? For instance, there are events, you know, the orbs, the orbs being seen flying over the skies of uh, southern New Hampshire. I mean, that's something that I had blogged about, something that I'd witnessed. That was my real first genuine UFO experience, let's just say. I mean these things have been filmed, you know, there are videos on YouTube of these things and you can see these things a lot. I mean orange orbs have been seen, I don't know, forever. Yeah, but there's a scene where two of the characters are watching it from like the back porch and my wife and I back in 2017 early 2017 had this very strange and prolonged experience where a chevron shaped ufo showed up (laughs) over our neighborhood over the tree line very very bright and hovered there for a very long time unfortunately we didn't have like a telephoto lens and we couldn't really get good pictures of it we did get pictures of it but we didn't get good pictures of it you know it's really hard to take pictures of things in the sky at night let me just say that you know (laughs) when skeptics go a UFO, quick, get the worst camera you have. No, it's not that. You get the camera that you have that doesn't have like professional telephoto lens on it because otherwise the camera doesn't know what to focus on in the night sky. Mm -hmm. So we had this experience where we were just watching this thing hover. And I have to say that it was unsettling. At first you're like, oh, wow, cool. Look at that thing. What is that thing? You know, why is it just sitting there? But then after like a while, you're just like, why is it sitting there? <laughs> Why doesn't it go away? I don't OK, we get the message. you know, you're some very strange, non-aerodynamic-looking object in the sky. Why are you hovering over my neighborhood? It's a little disturbing to me. It wasn't like, "Oh what joy the space brothers are here.: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what I think sometimes, is the whole space brothers, love and light, they're here to tell us to be stewards of the Earth. That's all good, I guess, but a lot of paranormal experience does seem very much wrapped up in trauma, like you mentioned earlier, or really extreme emotional states or even death and and a lot of darkness. So it's a mixed bag. I guess like life, it is a mixed bag. But sometimes I wonder about people who really do want to have more paranormal experiences. It's like you really should probably be careful.
0: I will just say this now. I mean, Gordon and I have discussed this. Don't want to have paranormal experiences. Don't pursue it. Don't chase after it. I have just come to the conclusion at this point in my life that paranormal experiences are basically either harbingers or some sort of like Greek chorus on death and tragedy. I had actually blogged quite a bit in the year 2016, late 2015, early 2017, you know, just about all these very odd experiences that I had had. And, you know, I presented evidence about them. But, you know, in that period, there was a lot of death. And I just felt like at one point, you know, in the middle of this, that death was just kind of hovering over me, over my family, over the house. You know, we lost some really wonderful young people way too early in an age some overdoses, a really horrible skiing accident. My father-in-law died. My grandmother died. I mean, there was just – the paranormal is a very good thing to watch from a distance. You know, just keep a very safe distance from it because if you get close to it, you know, I really have to be blunt here, to keep my conscience clear, it's probably not going to have salutary consequences on your life.
1: Well, that's fair to say. And, you know, to bring it back to the To the Stars Academy, that seems to be the difficulty for me working this stuff out because To the Stars Academy seems like an op. It's obviously wrapped up in military intelligence and they're probably going to use UFOs as a justification for a new boogeyman and a new stage of war. I mean, we've heard this story. It's a tale as old as time. It's been talked about in conspiracy circles for decades. But the flip side of that is to say, well, this is an op. So the Space Brothers are good, and we have the military going after them. You know, there's like this implied idea that they're trying to turn the good guys bad by painting them as like a new threat. And I don't know, maybe that's too simple of a way to look at it. Again, categories.
0: You know, that's the Stephen Greer explanation. You know, Stephen Greer will be like, abductions in my labs. There's this whole... They're hiding this technology from us and so on and so forth. I mean, I've seen UFOs for myself. I've had good sightings now. Some kind of documentary recording of, you know, not great because it's just, it's very difficult. Again, like I said, to photograph an object in the sky when you're not expecting to see one. I don't know what UFOs are. I just don't, Mm -hmm. you know, I can speculate. I can offer up any number of potentialities but i don't know i can't tell you with any degree of confidence what we're looking at i mean is it interdimensional is it military hardware you know is it the space brothers is it this is it that i don't know and i don't feel comfortable making any definitive statement about that because i i haven't been on one you know (laughs) and i haven't met any aliens for the most part, (laughs) but I'm very uncomfortable with either tack where you say there are space brothers or they're demons from Mars or something, you know, either way, I think it's irresponsible because we simply don't know. I mean, the way I feel at the moment is that whatever intelligence is behind us, and and I'm, I'm sure there is an intelligence, but I think it's essentially indifferent to us whether we see these objects or not, I think is just incidental to whatever is actually happening up there.
1: Right. Right. Yes. I agree with that. There's that whole thing with, of the Lovecraftian gods of kind of balance struck between, it's not that they hate you. It's that they don't give a fuck. Like you're basically an anthill. They'll kick it over without even thinking about it. And, and I think you're probably right. It's something in that mix is like, they don't even care enough to to hate or love humanity maybe.
0: Well, if you kicked over an anthill you'd be like, "Um, at best, you'd be like, oh crap, I kicked over an anthill, bummer." Yeah. And then you just keep going. Let's go get lunch. You know, and I mean, look at all the human beings who share our biology that are completely indifferent to us in the same sense, you know? I mean, Yeah. I think that a lot of people in these strata don't even think that we're humans you know or of the same biology of them you know I think one of the problems that we have with the way the the system has been set up is that we have a class of people who have so much money and so much power and so little accountability that their next phase of their ambitions is Godhood you know they want to become gods I mean this is transhumanism Jeffrey Epstein is a great example and also I'll just drop this in now since you know we want to Keep this a little bit looser. I think Epstein was very much a driving force behind a lot of the scientism, a lot of the transhumanism. I don't just believe this. I mean, if you start to look at the money, where the money went, who's receiving it, I think a lot of these people, like, you know, say your Daniel Dennett's and your Richard Dawkins's and Bill Nye's. I mean, so many of these people spent a lot of time with Epstein, out on Little St. James. And just the fact that so many of these just bizarre comic book science stories that I was tracking rather closely, when Epstein was arrested, it's almost like they just fell off the face of the earth. One minute it's like your children are going to be born from fingernail scrapings and you're going to incubate them in a plastic bag to like the science news is filled with look at this volcano, isn't it cool? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just like, <laughs> yeah. I think that a lot of this crazy comic book, delusional science fiction science that we've been seeing for the past 10 years at least, as well as this scientism, science is my religion, science is my God, evolution is my God, on and on and on. I think that Epstein and his cadre were very much, if not the driving force behind it, then a significant driving force behind it.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, well said. I mean, the political and the celebrity ties are the ones that people like to focus on in that National Enquirer kind of way. But hell, I mean, Stephen Hawking was even there. So it's like there's a very strong scientific connection.
0: Well, that's also something that, Again, my book, He Will Live Up in the Sky, available at all fine booksellers now. Um, That's, you know, I also go into that. The book was set 25 years in the past from when the book was released, because I wanted to sort of dial back and look at the genesis of the internet and this techno-utopianism that was so powerful. I mean, you were a little young back then. Yeah. But, you know, I got hit by it square in the forehead i was a true believer for all that kind of stuff and you know we have people like jaron lanier unfortunately who also was connected to jeffrey epstein but you know jaron lanier has done a number of mea culpas douglas Rushkoff. a lot of the people who are like these early techno utopians have come around and realized that they were being used that they were being conned that they were becoming accomplices to a you know a rather unsettling agenda of what will ultimately lead to things like smart cities and all this kind of stuff that will be the the huxley brave new world when the sheep are separated from the goats so to speak <laughs> the way things are going now you know i almost see it like HG Wells' the time machine with the morlocks and the Eloy, you know <laughs> so yes
1: Yeah, the book definitely has a 90s vibe in a bunch of different ways, and I like that. And the sentence setting does seem pretty familiar to you. You're very much an East Coast guy. You mentioned something in there called the Bridgewater Triangle at one point as a kind of paranormal hotspot going back to even the Native Americans, and that was one of those things that I stopped to look up, and it's very much real. Even though I hadn't heard of it before, there very much is a... You know what they call just a a paranormal hotspot, some kind of paranormal vortex in Bridgewater. Apparently,
0: there is in this that entire area of southeastern Massachusetts. Yeah, but there's a lot of history there. I think that it's not really a surprise that that's not too far from where Lovecraft <laughs> was raised. I mean, that whole crescent of the northeast corridor was so inspirational to Lovecraft. You know, I think this history goes back a very long time. And I being raised in that area and spending time in a lot of these kind of places, I mean, like literally spending time in Lovecraft country when I was a kid, it changed the way I thought. And I wanted to really inject that into the book. I wanted to bring that eeriness, that vibe, may not be there as much today since everything has been gentrified and, you know, everything's been overdeveloped. But certainly when I was young, I mean, I remember we had seances at the town cemetery in Gloucester, you know, not realizing that we were right on the outskirts of Dobson Farm, where there was a very famous, what was called the ghost Indian invasion back in the settler days. So, you know, it's a very charged with a lot of heavy juju, let's say, and You know, unfortunately, I mean, this is another story altogether, but also sort of inspired the events in the book. We were just kids messing around, not realizing that shortly after we were doing these things, there would be a tragedy in our circle. Again, tying back to all fiction being autobiographical, you know, I was raised in the music industry, or the music business, let's just say, not the industry per se. You know, my mother was a professional musician. I spent my first memories of playing with my matchboxes and Hot Wheels on the floor, this bar, this big nightclub that was owned by the Irish mob, eventually burnt down in an arson fire, <laughs> you know. But that was my first memories, uh, you know, spending time in nightclubs and uh, concert halls and all these kind of places, you know, just being dragged from one place to another, you know, just read your comic books and play with your toys, you know, while I rehearse and everything. And later on, and this informs a lot of the book as well, I spent a lot of time hanging out with hardcore bands in Boston in the early eighties. These were guys I went to high school with. There's two bands, one was Gangrene and one was Jerry's Kids and this was my circle. This was my social circle. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time in clubs in Boston and the environs and getting a look at that end of the music industry and just, Oh my God, Oh, the stories I could tell you, man, it Mm -hmm. was, it was grim. So I tried to put a lot of that into the book, you know, I mean, the time period is a little bit different, but a lot of that is based on my own observation and experience.
1: Yes. I really liked that whole set and setting as well. And, you know, we talked a little bit off air about the talent agreements that, I've been given and it just I'm in awe of how you've gone through this long career with comic books, screenwriting, all these things you've had to do where you have had to deal with the big machine, the entertainment industry, and I don't know how you you navigate those contractual situations when they are just so one-sided. It's a real David and Goliath kind of situation they put you in.
0: Well, the music industry is the worst. It really is and especially now you know you can have half a million people stream your song on Spotify and you'll get like a couple bucks from it you know yeah for real i mean it's brutal when they have the money and they have the power and they have the infrastructure to make things happen you're going to do whatever they say i mean i was hanging around with punk rock bands you know it was all like independent labels you know it was very do it yourself Nightclubs that were, in some senses, they were like VFW halls that somebody would rent out for a hardcore show, and then when the place was trashed, they would never be <laughs> allowed back in. No, but the music industry is a brutal thing, and and that's another thing that I really tried to bring into the book is just give you a sense of how disposable, really, really talented people are to the people running the industry. They just don't matter. They're just assets to be. Bought and sold and completely dispensed with it if need be. And there's something I, I saw personally, you know, when I was down here and I was playing with some bands, there was a couple of bands in this area that I had either joined or been seriously considered with for. And it all went south really quickly because of these managers and these record labels. And it was just really ugly to see. One band that I was in, they actually had a song on Beavis and Butthead after I had left. And I left the band because it was a one-man show. I mean, this guy was like the worst control freak you've ever seen. They got signed to Megaforce Records, which, you know, I, I guess a lot of the early thrash metal bands were on. And Megaforce fired the guy. This wasn't just his band. It was him. And they fired him from his own band, you know. It was basically like... Firing Frank Sinatra from being Frank Sinatra, you know, and everything fell apart and they didn't care. It's just crazy. The people who pull the strings, they don't care about the talent at all, No, at all.
1: That's true. It's true. And I can only imagine in a pre-internet world, like in the mid nineties, you're a young guy who knows he's not going to have a conventional nine to five job. You have some talent. You want to be an entertainer whether comedian or musician or whatever, and there's only one road. I mean, it's really hard to bargain from that type of position. So I can only imagine all these things we speculate about today of all these actors being involved in a lot of dirty stuff. It's like, well, there's only one road to success and certain people hold those keys. So is it any wonder that if you're looking at people who cut their teeth on the 80s or 90s, Is it any wonder there's so many similarities and so many boxes can be checked for each one? It's kind of mind-blowing when you think of the totality of it, but at the same time, there's just one path.
0: It's the spoil system from hell, really. I mean, because the way the industry is set up now, whatever you want to point at, there's this wall, okay? On one side of the wall is just riches and fame and a level of luxury and privilege that most people can only guess at. And the other side of the wall is just nothing, nothingness, obscurity, poverty, total lack of access. And that's the way things are set up now. And you hear a lot of these stories. I mean, how many of them are apocryphal? How many of them are just gossip and rumor? It's really hard to pull apart. But I'll tell you one thing. When you look at the spoil system and you look at this stark choice that you're given where you can either be inside the club, sitting at the table, or you can be outside in the alley, picking through the dumpster. Those are the two choices that you faced with these days. I mean, there used to be a middle ground. You could build a career selling maybe like 100,000 records, a pop, touring separate clubs. It's all gone, you know, is either poverty and obscurity or godhood. So when you hear these stories, I don't have any evidence for these things personally, but I got to tell you, realizing the choices that these people make and the price of admission is doing really bad stuff just to show that you can be trusted or or you can bend the knee, <laughs> you know? I mean, given the choice, I'm sure a lot of people will take it. And, you know, another thing that that I really have to point out, growing up in a family of professional musicians and seeing the music industry from the outside, I mean, musicians are always incredibly screwed up people. You know, why anybody would listen to, like, Musicians or actors about things like politics or something. (laughs) I have no idea because it's obviously because people fall for the public image machine and don't realize how screwed up these people are. I mean, actors are so screwed up. (laughs) I had a friend who, you know, I met in the advertising business when I was working in there and he was in a band in the early nineties that, you know, a lot of record companies were looking seriously at and He picked up a lot of actresses, you know, Mm -hmm. because, you know, a lot of actresses in New York, right? Actresses were sort of his groupies. And boy, the stories he could tell, you know, I mean, it's just like, you hear this from people like actresses are all just like really screwed up in the head. So, you know, why do I care what, I don't know, Bette Midler or somebody thinks? Because I'm sure she's just like a completely train wreck of a human being and all these people on Twitter, you know, and. The interesting thing about that now, seeing the context that we didn't have in the early 90s, when we see these people on Twitter every day, we really get a sense of just how sick in the head they are.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And getting back to the book, I was also going to ask you if you had any wild synchronicities or fiction and reality bleeding together kind of stuff, like the whole invisibles thing. Did that happen to any degree? Oh,
0: so much so that I'm not sure I really kept track of it all. (laughs) So, I started working on this book in early January 2015, and it was much more oriented towards UFOs and stuff, and I really moved away from that, because again, you know, I don't want to cover the same ground the X-Files covered. I mean, I'm not going to do it as well as they did it, and it's been done to death. So, I'm, I'm writing a lot about UFOs and stuff, and then I have my first really solid UFO sighting in late may of that same year and not only me but you know my wife and my daughter but here's the other thing i mean this is something that you and i have discussed on the show quite at length baked into the original concept of the original plot of the story is a singer in a very sound garden like band <laughs> who goes missing and is later presumed dead Actually presumed dead throughout the entire story, you know. So I'm not giving spoilers there. So I'm writing this story, you know, very much had a Chris Cornell type in mind, had a very Soundgarden band in mind, and then you know we all know what happened in May of 2017. So you really do have to wonder how these things happen. The other thing too is that you know, and I'd actually blogged about this with Stranger Things. Stranger Things came out in 2016 and I had had earlier versions of the story pretty much plotted out and a lot of dialogue written by that point in time. And, you know, one of the main kind of MacGuffins of the story is a dead body is found, but it turns out that it's a double and things like that and is identifying marks in the body and so on and so forth that give away the actual identity and we saw like a very very similar plot line or story point to that in the first series of stranger things and i had actually blogged like oh that's very interesting
1: (laughs) i remember that i remember that you had you had a feeling like how is someone looking over my shoulder and and getting this material like who's in my computer
0: (laughs) (laughs) it was weird it was weird Here's the thing, I mean, I know a lot of people in the Los Angeles area, let's just say, you know, I know this for a fact, read the blog, and I've actually had people in that business contact me over the years. So, I mean, I realized that these people, or some of these people, follow my work, especially if you're drawn to these kind of topics. And there Mm -hmm. were other things in the Stranger Things series in the first one, the real Stranger Things, not the fake Stranger Things sequels that I really looked at and go, oh, yeah, I think maybe they were reading the blog, you know? I mean, Mm -hmm. it just seemed that way. You know, of course, I've written about Montauk. So if you're going online and you want to write about Montauk, I mean, eventually my blog would probably come up in a Google search, right? Yeah. But the other thing, too, and I know we had discussed this quite a bit off the air. I don't know if we discussed it on the air, but I had written about Orion Krauss. And Orion Krauss was Again, a musician. So we're looking at that same world who in early September had woken up and beaten his family to death with a baseball bat, went outside, um, stripped all his clothes off, rolled around in the mud for a while, and then went next door and told his neighbor, I need my medicine. I killed my family. And one of the things that really struck me about that story, first of all, is that it was so soon, you know, it was just, three weeks before Las Vegas, which could arguably be a similar situation if you chose to see it that way. So I had a character who in some ways is very similar, you know, and shows up at a house naked in the story and is, let's just say, a programmed killer his name in the book was Kevin, I had actually changed it because up until fairly recently, his name was Brian. So I was just like, oh, Brian, Orion, you know, kind of match. But it gets even stranger because he shows up at a house in Littleton, Massachusetts, which is next to Groton, Massachusetts, where Orion Krauss killed his family. Now, what gets even more strange about that is that both Groton and Littleton are next to Fort Devens, which I had sort of Experience in the vicinity of because two of the people in my mother's nightclub act lived not far away from Fort Devons, which at the time was called the U.S. Army Intelligence School. And Devons became notorious in the late seventies because a green beret had murdered his wife. and it turned out the wife was looking into drug smuggling, human trafficking, going through a Fort Devons and, you know, with the CIA and the Mossad and all this kind of stuff, and he had always insisted that he did not actually kill his wife that he was set up, and she was killed because she was looking into all this kind of stuff and The base commander died in a car accident shortly after this all went down and this is the whole whole litany of stuff coming out of that place, and later on, there was a federal penitentiary built on the grounds of Devons, and Joker Sarnayev was housed there may still be housed there, uh, Bernie Madoff. I mean, all these, it was basically like Arkham Asylum Mm -hmm. on the grounds of this place, you know, where they kept all the supervillains, so to speak. So it's a very strange area. And, you know, again, I spent a lot of time in that area and had some unhappy life experiences that connected to Devon's, let's just say. There was a very strong Fort Devon's connection for what I consider one of my great life traumas. So I felt that I had to at least reference that in the story. But the fact that it basically, again, another scenario, very similar to something that had written in early 2015, showed up in late 2017, was very interesting to me. Very powerful synchronicity, but not especially a pleasant one, let's just say. So there were a number of these kind of things throughout the writing of the story things that I've written about would show up outside of that, you know, classic synchronicity kind of experience.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting, man. It makes me just always wonder, where do ideas come from? How real are the things in our imagination? And how do the things in our imagination connect to the real world? Because there's definitely some connective tissue there. I don't think we have it all worked out, but there's just too many examples of this kind of thing occurring.
0: Oh, well, I mean, so much of the work that I've done on the blog over the past 13 years now has been focused on that. Yeah. Particularly people like Jack Kirby. And like, why did he do a face on Mars story in 1959? And then it sat in a drawer and, you know, wasn't published till several years later. And then, you know, this whole kind of scenario reemerges in the mid-70s. But I think, again, getting back to people whether for good reasons or bad reasons, kind of look into these questions on behalf of the United States government, you know, was, again, something very interesting to me to explore in a a fictional setting where you have a little bit more leeway than if you're actually writing a report or an article dealing with real people. I mean, fiction is very liberating. You know, you can sort of let your speculations run wild. I will say that all the situations that I became Fixated on in the writing of this book have some basis in reality. I mean, there's a lot of reality, historical reality, uh, into the book. Like the fact, you know, finding out that right off the coast of Quincy, Massachusetts, you know, where I'd spent, you know, the neighborhood where I'd spent so much of my young life was where a paperclip went down. There's an island in Boston Harbor right off the coast of Squanton, Massachusetts, where I would take my driving lessons in high school where Verna von Brown and all the rest of the gang from Pinamunda were housed after the war. They were flown into the Naval Air Base in Squantum and housed at this facility that was, I think it was like a typhus hospital from like the 1800s originally. But fascinating coincidence here is that the movie Shutter Island with Leonardo DiCaprio was The exteriors for that film were shot at Fort Strong on Long Island, again, where the paperclip went down. So I I felt the need to put that all into the book because it was just such a bizarre, I don't know, synchronicity experience, (laughs) however you want to put it. I just couldn't believe it because I knew exactly where that island is. I mean, when I went to that beach, you could see it from the beach, (laughs) you know. So it was a very strange and weird experience. I just want to dial it back just a little bit to Orion Krause. I mean, Orion Krause was from Rockport, Maine. That's where he was actually from. He was visiting his family in this town outside of Fort Devons. But Rockport, Maine is where Andre Paharich did you know all his work that eventually ended up in the nine experiments and the nine sciences. There's an area of Rockport called Glen Cove, where he would have psychics in Faraday cages and all of it. And I just thought that was a really strange experience that this guy would end up in a situation that I guess if you're going to write a fictional story about it, you put it in this Manchurian candidate kind of setting, some sort of experiment. I don't know. I mean, just saying fictionally, was from the very town where Andrew Paharich was doing his experiments and then ended up committing these atrocities right outside of Fort Devens. So, yeah, how could I not write about that? You know, How could I not incorporate that into the story? Even though, again, in, in this particular case, I had sort of done so precognitively, I guess you would say.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's super interesting. And it's also weird because, I guess to take it back to uh, Peter Lavenda, it was when I read Sinister Forces where that was the first time I think I folded in pre-colonial context to a lot of the weirdness out there because he talks about Point Pleasant and even the fact that Charles Manson, you know, he's associated with LA, but he was born in Ohio. Yep. And this is mound country. huh. And there's a huge history of these mounds and they're very wrapped up in energy and paranormal activity as well. And so sometimes, uh, you know, as Americans, we might start the story with the uh, 200 year history we have, the couple hundred years we have, but there is a much deeper history and it could inform people losing their minds in 2020 still, you know, that kind of stuff.
0: Oh, absolutely. And this is why, you know, John Keel was like, particularly towards the end of his life, he was just like, go, leave. Don't, don't look into this stuff. There's nothing good for you. There's nothing good for you in this stuff. Just stay away. You know, I'll tell you when I watch that Hellier series, I'm just like, Oh, I hope this ends well for these people. You know, there was this whole meme going on, like, where are the gremlins, no gremlins, that kind of thing. Well, you know, why would they appear on camera? You know, why would they be that cooperative? <laughs> you know, My sense is that you run around trying to place yourself in these situations, Point Pleasant and, you know, hellier and, and all these kind of things, you just be... Very, very careful because a lot smarter people than you have met unhappy fates, let's just say, in dealing with this stuff. And again, this is something, you know, if you read Akil, especially his later books, he was quite sober about and he wasn't being sensationalistic about it. He was just like, no, don't stop. (laughs) Stay away. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the more you kind of have experience with this stuff, I mean, I think the more you relate to that, I mean, I think something happened to Keel, something really bad happened to him sometime in the late 70s or early 80s. And I think it just completely changed his worldview. I think something he didn't want to talk about, I think that really darkened his whole take on these things and getting back to things like Point Pleasant and the Mounds. I mean where else would Manson come from? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, are we surprised that he came from this area? And it's like, well, no, because this is what these areas do. Apple trees grow apples, and these places grow Charles Manson's.
1: <laughs> well said, well said. And I'm sure we'll bounce around a bunch of different areas, weave in and out of the book's topics, but I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk to you about some stuff from the blog, namely today's social condition you've referred to as the woke virus. And I know a lot of people are reacting to this. It's dominating a lot of conversations, especially in the the comedy sphere of podcasts. But the way you framed it up I think is just really interesting. Talk to us about how you see this woke virus affecting the current culture and maybe some of the real origins for this thing. Well, this is nothing new. I think it sort of popped up. It popped out
0: I think it had a lot to do with Occupy Wall Street. And I think it might have been summoned from its pit. You know, it's very much a divide and rule tactic in some ways because it so clearly does divide people. And it creates division in ways that I think become permanent or at least very lasting. Wokeness... It was called political correctness in the early 90s. That term's still used. But what it really ties back to is that you need to go back. I mean, if you really want to go back, you can go back to the 30s and the communist movements in the United States. Or even even before that with the anarchist movements and the Palmer Raids and these kind of actions where you would have these dissident movements pop up and experience extreme reaction from the authorities. And that reaction, I think, sort of gestated in a lot of people's minds and poisoned a lot of people's minds. And I think that that toxin would eventually emerge in wokeness. But I think the more immediate precursor to this is in the late 60s when you had the yippies and the weathermen and a lot of these sort of radical groups that were flirting around with low-grade terrorism. Some police were shot with some bombings. And the Nixon Justice Department came down on this very hard. And a lot of people who are sort of veterans of this that didn't end up in prison retreated to a lot of these liberal arts colleges in the Northeast, Ohio, just sort of on the rim in these rural areas, places like Oberlin and Antioch and places up in Vermont, rural Massachusetts That's really sort of the spawning ground for what was called intersectionalism. And intersectionalism was, it arose out of radical feminism. And it was just basically a way of determining who is the most disadvantaged or the most victimized. Are you black? Are you gay? Are you female? Is this your politics? So on and so forth. So it was very theoretical in a lot of ways. I don't think that it had been weaponized the way it had been later. That wouldn't really come into the later 80s. But it just sort of gestated in certain circles, in left circles. But it it really transmutated into what I would call illiberal leftism. Because it is very anti-liberal. It's authoritarian, and I would argue that it's totalitarian in many regards. So. It just dated in these colleges, certain circles, small press magazines, and then began to emerge into the larger culture in the late 80s, the reaction to Reagan and Bush and so on and so forth. And it became very much a topic of conversation in the early 90s. I think what a lot of this had to do with is that you would have a lot of professors who were older in these colleges retire, and this new generation that had come of age in the late 60s and early 70s and cut their teeth on intersectionalism and identity politics really come into power. I think a lot of what we saw in the early 90s was a reaction to that. And, you know, we had people like Camille Paglia had written a lot of Screeds about this. We had a book called The Closing of the American Mind, which looked at a lot of the ferment on campus, you know, this authoritarian type of anti-liberal leftism that today we call woke. (laughs) Republicans were very effective at using PC as a weapon against the mainstream left or against liberals. You know, so it's ironic that, you know, an anti-liberal academically based movement is being used against liberals you're quite effectively because we saw i mean you know clinton was elected i mean i think a lot of the clinton election had to do with ross perot you know he split the republican vote i would argue but you know clinton very soon you know there was a huge landslide in 1994 where the republicans won both houses of congress and had this very adversarial relationship that ended up with the impeachment in 97 and 98. And then following that, we had this sort of anti-PC movement that was very effectively weaponized by Republican strategists. It sort of just receded back, went back to the colleges. It went back to places like Antioch and Oberlin and Wake Forest and a lot of these places, you know, liberal arts colleges. And then it would return for reasons we can argue about, but it would return after the 2012 election, I think in earnest. And basically what we call wokeness today sort of arose from that comeback it had. But I think what it coincided with is that it coincided with the collapse of mainstream religions. Cause I think wokeness for a lot of people is a religion. People see it as a political philosophy, but they behave like religion. They behave like religious fanatics. I think, I mean, I don't think that's a unique observation on my part. But the problem is, is that since it was focused in these liberal arts colleges, humanities programs, arts programs, you had a lot of people who were very well indoctrinated into this philosophy streaming into the media. I think in the wake of the economic downturn, you know, the Great Recession in the late 2000s, a lot of people went back to school, and they were really marinating in this stuff. So we saw it really hit wokeness, political correctness, intersectionalism. All these different philosophies really hit the mainstream media in a way that I had never seen before in my life. I think a lot of this was being helped along by Silicon Valley and Wall Street. You know, for tactical reasons, I don't don't think that these people necessarily subscribe to these philosophies. But the thing that I pointed out in my first major blog on this is that it's a virus, but it's really a cancer because it destroys the host. There's sort of an expression now, get woke, go broke. And it might be a little simplistic and a little reductionist, but you know, I think there's an essential truth there because we saw woke thinking take over well, let's just say like, you know, a lot of these digital media these new sites you know gawker vice you know vice is certainly a shadow of their former self you know every time an organization like this embraces you know really takes the full woke pill it ends up rotting the foundations of their success and their financial well-being from inside and i think it eventually collapses and we're seeing you know a number of collapses we saw thousands upon thousands of layoffs in 2019 from digital media sites. Mainstream newspapers didn't take the woke pill quite as much, but a lot of them did. That entire industry is collapsing. And ironically, these liberal arts colleges that really incubated wokeness are collapsing, they're closing. You're not going to hear about this in the mainstream media, but Or in the national media, but certainly, you know, these local media outlets talking about how one woke college after another is closing their doors. And also, you know, the humanities programs, which were really ground zero for wokeness, have just utterly collapsed. I think I read a statistic that humanities majors now, of the whole, are less than 5%. Whereas in the late sixties, you know, humanities majors were 20% of the whole. So that is just a catastrophic collapse. You know, there are probably other reasons for that. But whenever a media organization or a institution of any kind goes full bore on this philosophy, it collapses. It collapses them from within. And I always start to wonder, is this like some brilliant counterinsurgency? strategy by the right wing, because it's certainly having a devastating effect on the left. Look no further than the presidential primaries in the Democratic Party and all this arguing about, you know, just today as we're recording, Joe Rogan had endorsed Bernie Sanders, and then Sanders was just roasted alive on Twitter because Rogan, you know, offends a number of woke dogma. Yeah. You know, so it's a fascinating story to me because it's something that I've seen for a very long time. And I remember seeing a lot of these ideas in the early 80s and just sort of gestating up from these colleges and and seeing that it was mostly centered in feminist circles and far left wing circles. But seeing, say, for a company when Gillette adopts this way of thinking and does that ad, which they've done for last year's Super Bowl, which basically Destroyed the brand. I mean, Gillette had an $8 million, I'm sorry, $8 billion write-off last year. Hmm. And again, this wokeness, it poisons because it's so divisive and because it's so stark and you're know, drawing these lines in the sand. I think it creates a kind of resentment that never really goes away.
1: Right, right. I mean, even Obama said, It creates a circular firing squad, which is such a great term because the philosophy and mindset is so vigilant. It holds such a standard that you can always find a person slipping and then you call them out on that and you're left with no one. And I think that's just the best kind of analysis of this. I had this quote from the blog where it basically just summarizes what you just said, but you say, Consider this, what if woke isn't some spontaneous eruption of revolutionary fervor or even some insidious plan by secret sorosoids to color revolutionize America? What if woke is a kind of virus concocted, purified, and unleashed by parties unknown who wish to collapse all the opinion-forming institutions in America? And it's like, damn, man, that's pretty hard hitting, but you're right. Hollywood, the news media, the universities, Silicon Valley, anyone who's drinking this Kool-Aid, it's like you're, you're marking yourself for destruction because you will not be able to remain as pure as this philosophy is requiring you to be. And some people really need to do some serious soul searching regarding what they're adopting, whose Kool-Aid they're drinking, and it's kind of crazy because in some of your other blogs, you're you're pointing out constantly that China is on the rise and China likes their censorship. And I sometimes wonder if maybe it's the right, but maybe it's like this new rise of China dominance. This seems like the stepping stones to social crediting. First you self-censor, then everybody has this um, circular firing squad. We're no longer united by being Americans, let's say. And I'm not big on nationalism, but it's still something. And we're just kind of destroying ourselves. And it's like, hold on a second, take a step back and and see where this road is going. Because if you want to end up like China, as different as it seems, I mean, this is a road to get there. It starts with self-censorship. It goes to pre-crime thought crimes, which you've been covering as well. And before you know it, everybody's censoring themselves. No one's talking and your digital surveillance platforms are in full swing. And it's a road to, uh, The kind of thing that's going on in China.
0: Well, it's funny you should bring that up because there's a, I think it's been taken down from YouTube now, but there was a very interesting interview that I think was, was it Edward Griffin? You know, one of these kind of types had done with a KGB defector back in the 80s. And it uncannily described what we're seeing now. You know, he had referred to it as some kind of subversion program. There's actually a Russian term for it. I think a lot of your listeners will probably be familiar with this interview. It was pretty well circulated for a while. And again, I think it's been taken down, which is kind of chilling. But the way he described, uh, you know, certain Soviet KGB tactics and how they would infiltrate and subvert a country that they've targeted through the opinion forming media, through academia, through these institutions that they might perceive as being at least soft on opposition to communism or the Soviet system. I don't want to sound like some kind of McCarthyite here. I'm just pointing out that this guy was pretty well describing the tactics that we're seeing today. But I do wonder if like, what if the legacy of these tactics that were injected into the academic institutions in the wake of Vietnam and Watergate. And then with the fall of the Soviet Union and the Soviet system, it kind of becomes zombie systems that they operated. It's like a computer virus that it just starts acting out its own protocol. It doesn't act on the the instructions of the engineer or the designer. It just starts doing all these crazy things. I think that if we see a lot of the way wokeness and intersectionalism and identity politics have played out, that it doesn't seem like there's somebody at the switch, you know, it doesn't seem like there's somebody at the wheel, that it's become so chaotic and so many people who are ideologically pure one day and the next day they're being thrown to the wolves. It reminds me of the wake of the French Revolution or the Inquisition's Whenever you have these kind of ideological, philosophical purity exercises, purges, so on and so forth, that a lot of the people who think they're on top of the heap one day are being, again, thrown to the wolves the next day. So it's a very strange and chaotic process. But if you look at what's actually happening, you know, the qui bono, what is the qui bono argument? Yeah, everybody is annoyed and inconvenienced by this, and everybody is always worried about running afoul of these ever-changing political diktats. But you know, this is why I wrote that article. So what are we seeing? Okay, let's start from the top. Liberal Arts College is closing down on mass. Humanities programs being decimated being a shadow of their former self, no matter how loud and noisy they are with intersectionalism and all these kinds of what they call, you know, a very vocal minority. Mainstream media taking it on the chin. Digital media, this huge influx of digital media sites that we saw rise up in the mid to late two thousands and on to the early teens become very widespread, very popular, very well Financed and thought of, and you know, there's a great deal of prestige. You know, Gawker and Vice and Salon, you know, all these kind of sites they've all just been absolutely decimated. You know, a lot of them are just simply running on fumes and are being kept alive. I almost out of a sense to me of like an inability to admit defeat, you know, an inability to give their ideological enemies any satisfaction. The zombies. They're a shadow of their former selves. They're running on skeleton crews. They have no money, but they can't be shut down because that would be, you know, that would be a tactical defeat that would embolden, embolden the opposition and demoralize the troops.
1: hmm. hmm. And man, as we're closing this thing out, I did also want to mention that you do have a private invite-only blog now for the never-ending Liz Frazier rabbit hole. It was consuming the secret sun, which we never want to do because it's such a great resource. So you broke it off into its own thing. Can people get access to that if they contact you?
0: Uh, People can get access to it if they are um, clever and motivated.
1: (laughs) Okay, fair. Let's leave it at that. And I also wanted to touch on the Secret Sun Book Nook. I mean, this is pretty cool. It seems like you have a little digital bookstore where you've paired and curated some great content together by theme, which is just a really awesome idea.
0: Yes, I'm I'm glad you uh <laughs> I'm glad you pitched that uh or plugged that. Um yeah, it's been a, a huge success. I've done two rounds uh, already and uh it's just it's just a way of um Keeping in touch with the uh, with the audience and uh, helping keep this, this, the the work afloat and help keep the work going uh, in a way uh, that you know isn't just passing the begging bowl around and 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 giving people um, information that I think they need. You know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I have such an overflow of books from publishers and authors that send them out. I might have to Howard Stern that one from you because this is taking up too much room in this office. Probably, <laughs> <laughs> and Either way, I know i got to let you go at at some point. Again, secretsun.blogspot.com for all your Chris Knowles needs. He Will Live Up in the Sky is the great new novel. Anything else to leave him with? Uh, I have a lot of
0: uh, irons in the fire. Let's just say that. Uh, I don't know how much of it will be ready by the time this airs, but uh, just keep an eye on the site because I've got a lot of big plans. Now, now, I I sort of broke the logjam with this book. I've been a little... uh, I don't know, literally constipated, I guess, you know, as far as uh, getting things out into the market. You know, a number of reasons that the way the book market has changed has a lot to do with it. But I I feel this book really sort of broke uh, the log jam and and, uh, I've got a lot of more material that's been sitting sitting, uh, on my desktop for quite some time now that I want to get out to people.
1: (laughs) Provocative, provocative. I'm excited for that. And this has been a lot of fun, man. You've been a great friend and colleague. I'm lucky to know you. You're the man. Thanks as always. Thank you, Greg. Always a
0: pleasure and an honor.
1: Ben the Knee people, there it is. The great Chris Knowles, being way too kind to your humble stoner host. But does it get any better than Chris? I don't think so. Putting his OCD to proper use, decoding the esoteric layers of reality and trying to bring the world back from the brink of insanity. Always a good time. You know, there are a lot of previous THC guests who transitioned over to fiction, and I haven't always been receptive or excited about dedicating a show to a book that is fiction. I often just say, let me know when uh, the next one comes around that is more relevant to what we're interested in. It's just sometimes a difficult interview for me to do. I think the last time we really did one based on fiction was The Lovecraft Code when Peter Lavenda put that out. But Chris's book is just so full of relevant content and really just a template for the way that he thinks these things are probably connected. And so nonfiction fiction fiction is a great way to describe it. We were going to talk about the coronavirus a little bit more on top of the woke one. But that story was really just coming out when we recorded. And, I mean, what really do you need to know? Swine flu, bird flu, coronavirus. It's always something. And what is interesting is, of course, there's a bio lab right near the epicenter of this thing. And its logo looks a lot like the Umbrella Corporation from Resident Evil. I almost think that's too good to be true. It could be a doctored image, some prankster on the internet. But we have seen life imitate art more than a few times. What's definitely true is that Netflix released a docuseries called Pandemic on the day that the virus news was truly rolled out, January 7th or something? I don't know. I never really want to contribute to or get caught up in the media hype for these sorts of things. But I do look for elements and threads that might suggest that this isn't just some random, organic occurrence. Nothing is, right? And I'm not even sure that I'm 100% in on germ theory as it's presented anyway. I actually had this thought about vaccines because I was interviewed on another show called The System is Down. It was a great time. I don't think they've put it out yet, but we talked about vaccines and the hosts didn't vaccinate, and I think they were surprised, maybe even disappointed, when I said that I would likely vaccinate my kids with a minimalist schedule and when they're a couple years older, like right before entering school. And I do want to send them to public school so that they can learn that you have to deal with and work with and potentially avoid all sorts of different types of people in this life. You can't live in a bubble. Their lives are going to be weird enough. Now, I'm not sure, I don't have kids yet, but my preliminary thought is that someone like Del Bigtree probably has a protocol for being one foot in and one foot out, and I would probably trust that. But if the elite really want to weed out the rebels, weed out the people who don't play ball, what if, like a lock and a key, they create a vaccine, throw it into the insane schedule of like 60 that were already given to kids, And then five years later, release a virus specific to that vaccine. I'm getting way off topic here, but I just don't put anything past the medical space. It is a dark place, and in one fell swoop, they could hit everyone who's a vaccine skeptic with the very tools they're using already. Right where it hurts most, their own children. Just something to think about. But, uh, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Loved this show. Chris's book is a great read. It's been a while since I even read fiction. I read uh, Christina Henry's Alice not long ago because I literally did judge a book by the cover. And it was fine. But if you're a fan of The X-Files or the type of story structure where characters who have no interest in conspiracies or the paranormal are thrust headfirst down the rabbit hole... It's a very enjoyable ride, and it does showcase how many of these interlocking pieces probably work. I love the title of the book, too, and more importantly, where that title comes from, and you'll know it when you read it. And Chris has been very good to us with his time and his work over the years. The Secret Sun has always just been a blog that he totally could have turned into three or four books by now if he really wanted to capitalize So show him some love and pick up He Will Live Up in the Sky. It's like 13 bucks. Also, I mentioned the talent agreements that I've been proposed from various TV producers or studios. Maybe you saw my social media post about them. But Chris has been awesome there too. He put me in contact with one of his guys and has just been a huge help when dealing with the production companies who have invited me to contribute to... A couple of TV shows they're trying to start up. Of course, I'm not stupid. I know to read a contract and not sign anything that would ever interfere with THC, but it would be a cool life experience to be part of a show. I just don't get why it can't be like guest spots on a podcast. We don't really need to bring ink and paper into this, as Mitch Hedberg would say. But after, I think this is like the fifth talent agreement I've seen. And we tried to push back and negotiate, and they just rejected all our requests. I think I'm just done dealing with it. I'm also kind of done with social media. Gonna take a big step back there. Of course I'm gonna post the shows, but I'm really gonna start watching what I say. Because even though I've said a thousand times that I don't offend easily, and I actually like that kind of humor, when I do say something raw or even just fucking around... There is an uncomfortable backlash, and I don't really care, but look at what happened to Ari Shafir. Ari pushed it. That's his humor. I gotta support the guy. He was kind enough to sit in my car in the comedy store parking lot, smoke a joint, and do an interview back when I wasn't shit. It was like before I even had 20 episodes. But he makes a Kobe Bryant joke, and people publish his address, publish his grandmother's address, insinuate that people should go get him or his family. And it's just words. Go ahead and respond however you want with words, but you can't threaten people, and you can't attack them, and you shouldn't even call for Twitter to ban them. You do not want this world. It's easy to say you believe in free speech until you hear something you don't like. But I do hope Chris is right and that we have experienced peak woke and people are coming around and it's a waning kind of thing. But you do got to be careful. These are chaotic times and we should all be a bit more strategic with how we navigate. Don't bring yourself trouble you don't need. But I did think Chris was great on the woke virus. Some people might be exhausted by the conversation it's happening on a lot of podcasts, but His blog posts that relate to this are very well written. I quoted it wherever I could, and we really parsed through a lot of that more in the plus show. Hollywood woke reboots by the numbers, Ricky Gervais, the hired anti-woke assassin, the prospect that we've experienced peak woke, and a little esoteric impeachment parsing for good measure. As great as Chris is with the Synchro mystic stuff, he does have a career in dealing with some of this stuff and also analyzing pop culture, so he really is a knowledgeable guy in that regard. So, all good stuff. Sign up for Plus. I think it's time. Also, Chris has a Patreon, and I don't know how active he's been with it, but It's set up, and I told him that I'd be more than happy to give him the whole Plus show if he wants to get some premium content going. I think that's fair. You can be a Plus member, or just subscribe to Chris's Patreon if his particular episode is mainly what you're interested in. I don't know if or how he's going to do that, but it is something we talked about, and it just might be a thing. But that's it. I hope you had a good time. Thanks for listening, as always, and I will see you soon with another show. Your move, woke virus workers, occult entities of the other side, and deep state players of that nefarious nexus. Your fucking move.
2: This is important, hear what I say. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia, not in my head. It's just the hard truth. Knocked on your door while I stood. Stay- ask you a question, cause I know your head is still in the sand, don't be sheep till you slaughter for the rest of your life, oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke, you say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die, tough luck my friend, did you get the memo, can't you see that we're so screwed, don't you know we're our conflict, I'm gonna tell you this anyway It's a scary dark world Scarier every day Scary dark world No matter what you say Scary dark world Don't think we'll be okay Can't you see that we're so blue? You sit and wish But we don't have a choice It seems we're stuck here but you can find find noses, drown out the noise, now use that altar, end up your magic game, and listen to THC, you know, you go with the entities, if you ever see the UFO. Don't be sheep to your slaughter for the rest of your life, okay? pressed, but you're getting woke. You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're Arkham food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this Getting woke. You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our